0: All right, everyone, I do want to welcome you again to Hillside. Can we celebrate those who are here for the first time? Come on, we just want to welcome them. Listen, it's so good to have you here. If it is your first time, we uh, are grateful that you're here worshiping with us and uh, just joining us for church. You know, we want to let you know we believe God loves you. We believe he knows you by name, and we don't say that to freak you out. We believe that God's love is real and that his mercy is real And um, as you saw in the short video, we are in a series right now called Creed. And I'm taking a few weeks with us as a church to look at, to visit, to contemplate, to be reflective on one of the earliest statements of beliefs for the Christian faith. And um, what what I love to say is this was actually a very practical approach by early Christians. Very practical in that the churches that would gather didn't have what you and I have before us. They certainly didn't have an iPhone, somebody, where they could pull up the Bible app. And they certainly didn't have the scriptures that we hold. The early church would have gathered typically for a long period in synagogues. The Jewish synagogues, they would go for the readings from what's called the First Testament or the Old Testament. And Slowly but surely, they would cultivate Christianity through the work of the Holy Spirit and root it in the man, Jesus Christ. They recognize that, listen, while we hold to the First Testament, while we are aware of the Old Testament, we realize that this person we encountered has changed everything. That he's not just another man, but he is the fulfillment of... Of God he's the the most essential piece of God's story and so well they didn't have a Bible to read every time they gathered Um, sometimes in some of the larger congregations they may have a letter or two that they received from authors such as Peter or Paul or John there's some of the letters in your New Testament they're given titles a lot of times those titles mean two things they were either the people who received the letter Or the people who wrote the letter. And one of the earliest statements of beliefs was what we just viewed. It's called the Apostles' Creed. There's there's kind of two histories to it. One tradition holds that shortly after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples began forming what's called... The Apostles' Creed. Another holds that it took a couple hundred years of the church gathering, of the Holy Spirit working and developing their faith. Now, here's what's radical. It's less appropriate for today in this. The set of beliefs, what they were holding to, actually stood in contrast from some false gospels. From some false beliefs or ideas that were circulating and being populated at the time. And so early Christians, before they were baptized, they learned two significant... um, One is a prayer and one is a set of beliefs. Two significant things. The Lord's Prayer and then the Apostles' Creed. And it was a way for them to be formed in the ways of Jesus. Because here's the deal. All of us approach scripture differently. And perhaps the most important question to ask as you approach scripture is, who do you believe Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? If you just believe that Jesus was a great philosopher, can I tell you? If you just believe he was a great philosopher, I promise you will actually be able to get some incredible things from his teachings. You really will. You can. That's no reason not to read Scripture. You can read Scripture. And you'll get some significant things. Uh, if you believe that Jesus was just a, a, another person in history, that, you know, it's kind of easygoing, whatever it is. We like Jesus, but we don't like what he had to say. Then, you know, his words aren't going to mean much. But if you, like some of this early Christians, if you believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, then you don't really get a choice in the matter when it comes to his words. What you believe directly implicates how you behave, how you treat others, how you treat yourself, how you pray, how you care. And it's not just in Christianity that you have a set of beliefs. Some of you walked through yesterday with a set of beliefs. I know it. Because you told me before service about your sports team that you believe is the best team in college football and how they manhandled Boston College. You're rooted, you U of L fans. Others of you, you're UK fans. That's part of your belief. It's it's who I am. And it directly implicates how frustrated maybe some stress words that popped up as you watched the game. It's a set of beliefs. Now, here's the deal. We believe the Apostles' Creed. This set of beliefs is the beliefs that changes everything. Because it's an expression of the revelation we've received from the Holy Spirit about who the Father, our Heavenly Father is. And who the Son is that He sent. And then what the outworking of relationship with God is through the Holy Spirit. And this was important because the early church, they they couldn't always gather in groups. So they had to have something simple and concise. And this carried them through all the way through. It carried them for several hundred years and still carries them through. But until the printing press came, you've heard of the printing press, how the first book printed, the Bible. And how now it's been translated into virtually every language on the planet. But that wasn't how it was 2,000 years ago. So what we do in our time in this series is we're just taking some of the significant. We're taking all of it, but we're, we're preaching. I'm preaching every Sunday on just some of the beliefs that the Apostles' Creed states. And I'm not going to, you know, force them on you. I'm simply going to reveal... How the early church, what was in their life, in their mind, in their perspective, how they understood the significance of the authority and the power of the Holy Scriptures and the authority and power of the Holy Spirit and how for many of them, they gave up everything to follow Jesus Why would they do that? Why would they behave? Why would they treat their enemies that way? Why would they stand before gladiator battles in the middle of the Colosseum, in the middle of Rome, and be persecuted? Because they had beliefs. They weren't wishy-washy. They knew their identity wasn't national pride. Though I find that important, but that wasn't what theirs was rooted in. Their most significant identity was in Christ in relationship they were called a citizen of heaven and so it didn't matter how the citizens of Rome treated them because they were rooted in Christ well how could they love their enemies how could they take on physical persecution simple their beliefs as your beliefs formed them and directed their steps And so for us, it's important, not every year, not in every season, to revisit or visit our beliefs. But it is important from time to time to reflect and prayerfully consider, really, what and who do we believe in? Because it is possible, I'm not projecting this or proposing this for you, but it is possible to be near Christianity and not be a Christian. It is possible to be born in a quote-unquote Christian nation and you not really be following Christ Jesus. Again, I'm not saying that's you. I'm not pro- pro- proposing that or projecting that on you. But it's easy and convenient to claim Christianity at times. But it can be very different and difficult to walk in that relationship. And today's sermon is an uncomfortable one. Today's sermon, I would say, is certainly encouraging, but it is kind of annoying. This isn't usually how I lead in evangelism. These aren't my opening lines with a person in our community or somebody calling or emailing to find out more about relationship with God. I usually don't email back with today's passages or certainly the title of today's message but it is a significant piece to the process of discipleship and maturing I've titled today's message the cross we receive the cross we carry the earliest Christians did not delete a significant moment from their Savior's life they did not withhold from it they didn't bypass it. They didn't read it more quickly. They understood its significance and the call of every Christ follower that was laid upon it when it was read and recited. It is this line from the Apostles' Creed. He, being Christ Jesus, being Jesus, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, died, And was buried. You can see. Why don't lead? Because. To believe that about Jesus. Is to also receive the invitation from Jesus. To not only fix our eyes on the cross. But to also carry the cross on a daily basis. It's a term called cruciform. Cruciform. And it was a term that the early church would understand. In fact, maybe some of the churches you've attended are cruciformed churches. In some traditions, they literally, the church is formed in a crucifix, a cross shape as a reminder, as a posture of worship. Symbolic in gesture, but vitally important in posture. The cruciformed life is, in other words, the way of the cross. And there are times it works really well in our cultural climate. And there are other times it works very poorly in the cultural climate we're in. But it is the way of the followers of Jesus to not only see the cross, but dare I say to carry the cross, be willing to receive the cross in our own life. There's the cross we receive. Now I love, in fact, most messages are about the cross we receive. That's my favorite preaching point. Here it is. Your sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter what you brought in this place. As we learned a few weeks ago, Jesus revealed the heart of the Father towards you and me. And in one of the most famous, known parables, Jesus mentions a father that ran to his beloved son when the last thing we would think that should be given is love, God gave it generously. The prodigal son, are you familiar with that story? Not only the prodigal son, it's also the older brother. The heart of the father in that story is that all sons and all daughters would be home with him, living loved, living whole, living healed. That's the cross we receive, and the early church held tightly to that reality, that Pontius Pilate is highlighted as a historical reference. You see this in the First Testament. Isaiah, a portion of the book of Isaiah, I believe it's in chapter 6, it begins, In the year King Uzziah died. What is that? That's a historical reference. Oh, now they have context. That's what this moment was. He suffered under who? Pontius Pilate that he was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried. Matthew 16, it cuts both ways. It is the reality of the cross, if you will, that we receive. It's what I like to call a good day, everybody. Like the worship band, on point. The communion elements, they're not expired. All right, the the potluck dinner after, man, it's all your favorite foods. Everything is moving in the right direction. Jesus in Matthew 15, we've got a second takeout miracle. He feeds 4,000 in Matthew 15. I mean, another whopping meal and miracle. It's incredible. I think in one day, 24-hour period, They went from 40,000 likes to 400,000 likes after that miracle. I mean, it's incredible. YouTube views, there's a lot of traction happening. Things are going very, very well. And Jesus, he's getting skeptical of the crowds. Kind of one of the annoying pieces of Jesus is he gets skeptical of the crowds. Gets skeptical when everybody's coming in, he's thinking, uh, I don't know about this. Why are you here? The food. And so Jesus, he brings some of his closest disciples together. And he says, listen, guys. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is a direct, it's a Jewish term rooted in the book of Daniel. Only comes up in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man. This is in Matthew who Jesus refers to himself as. And so he said, hey, what's the poll? What's the word on the street? You know, I'm busy praying by myself. You guys are interacting a lot with the people. Who do they say that the Son of Man is? And um, I say, well, some say John the Baptist, your cousin. Some believe that that the Son of Man is John the Baptist. Jesus is thinking, okay, okay. And then some say Elijah, who Elijah was one of the foremost prophets in the First Testament. Striking, amazing, incredible words in prophetic language direction. Incredible. Some say Elijah. Some say, some say it's Elijah. And others say Jeremiah. Another. Now, he, he was a bit of a tearjerker, crybaby. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, but, man, he was significant, profound. Jeremiah and lamentations. Jesus. Some say Jeremiah is the son. Then Jesus does what only Jesus can do, and I hope you wrestle with this question from time to time. Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? Like, I get it. I get, I get what you heard. I get what the social media posts said about Hillside Church. I, I get what the pastor said on the radio ad. I, I get what your friend said and invited you, and I get all that, and that's powerful, and there's community, and it's incredible. I'm biased, but I love it here. I get all of that, but you have to come to grips with this question. Who do you say that I am? And the person who is most renowned for sticking his foot in his mouth, Jesus' closest three, Peter, James, John, Peter steps up and says, You're the Son of the living God, you're the Messiah. We could read it here, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Incredible. We can continue. And I tell you that you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I could just feel like Jesus is saying those words. And the worship band, the pads on the keys, they start coming back up. The ushers are getting in place. And they're thinking, it's about to come on, man. He's going somewhere. It's about to get good. It's about to get really, really good. Wrong. (laughs) Jesus just talked about a revelation Peter had and how, following Jesus, Peter would say, There's nothing like it. You have the words of eternal life, is what Peter would say in a similar confession in John chapter 6. And as Jesus often does, he makes things weird. He makes it uncomfortable and inconvenient. You know those people, you got them in your life. It's a great family gathering. It's an awesome conversation. Everybody knows you don't bring up the elephant in the room, but this person always seemingly brings up the elephant in the room, specifically right after dessert to serve somebody. It's that moment. Peter has confessed, perhaps one of the most profound confessions in all recorded within the gospel. And here is how Matthew 16 continues. Here's what it says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he's got to go to Jerusalem and suffer. What? Many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. What? And on the third day be raised to life. What? What, what, what? Peter, who do we need to remember just confessed he's the son of the living God, the Messiah. Peter did something I can relate with. Jesus, it's getting weird and uh, we don't lose, we win. We like trophies, we like medals, we like being number one. Jesus, you may not know this about us, but I like to win every argument I ever get into. And Jesus, I'm typically that guy. I always get the last word. So I'm right. So Jesus hears Peter say these words, Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, as you can imagine, calmly, kindly, with a twinkle in his eye, Smile on his face. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? I'd rather preach next week than this week, all right? I prefer resurrection than crucifixion, somebody. I much prefer my Savior is alive and resurrected, which I wholeheartedly believe. And Jesus would indeed tell his disciples, yep, you're going to inherit eternal life. You will rise again. That was all part of the equation. But he did not short circuit nor bypass the cross. And the early church would gather when the wind was not at their back. When they were stuck underground for fear of death, for their beliefs, they would remember the sacredness of the cross. The cross that they would receive, knowing that as they broke bread, and as they took wine or juice together, their mind and their heart, their entire being would go to that place again. It's not by works, but by faith not by my own doing but by God's great undoing that I'm made alive in Christ that the blood of Jesus has covered a multitude of sins how? well they would recognize what Jesus had done that God the creator God freely gave of his one and only son so that not one would perish but all might have everlasting life it's the cross they would receive But in equal measure, they were cognizant of the cross they were called to carry. The cross they were called to carry is what transformed the world. It was the cross that they carried that transformed Roman culture. To this day, we're singing words about Jesus, not about Caesar. We're reflecting on Jerusalem, not on Rome we're recognizing how Christianity has overtaken that region and how in the sum of the last 24 hours, over 3 billion people across the face of this planet have bent their knee, have celebrated the coming of Jesus Christ and His blood that covers a multitude of sins, all because of the cross that was received. But if you can imagine with me and if you can just let this sink in for a moment, You can't shake Jesus' invitation. He's not invited us to simply be fans or fanatics about his work on the cross. He's invited us to follow him in due measure. To live a cruciformed or a cross-bearing life. And it's not on Sundays. In fact, the most important places we're taking our cross this week are outside of those walls. They're into the car. And cross-bearing, yes, it enters your marriage, somebody. Cross-bearing, if you haven't realized, parents, it's all up in parenting. cross in the workplace. When it's easier to slander. When it's easier to discourage. When it's easier to point out and accuse. cross caring stands in faith. Stands in hope. Stands in love. It's a cross-carrying posture that can recite 1 Corinthians 13, which says, man, you're forgiven. There's no record of wrongs. It's just as I've been forgiven, so I can forgive you. And this is what the early church would rally around. It wasn't just an idea. It was their beliefs that formed them that transformed them and gave them the direction of their life. And I'm not here to list out, hey, here are the top ten ways to carry your cross. <laughs> ten years ago, I probably would have preached that message. I know better now. <laughs> cross bearing is caring for your parents, whether they're at the end of the days. Cross bearing. Is a father taking out his inheritance early and giving it on a son or daughter who doesn't deserve it? Cross carrying is staying consistent when everybody else is jumping ship. Cross carrying is being generous when the culture we're surrounded with invites us to live for ourselves. Cross carrying is removing comfort consistently and allowing ourselves in moments by the Spirit's leading to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable. Cross-carrying is the economy of the kingdom of God, is a kingdom of sacrifice. And Jesus is not asking you for the death of self. Nope. He loves you and you are valuable. But He is promoting death self, the me first life, the I first mentality and perspective. Jesus invites and he says to some of us, some of you have been trying to make life work in your own strength. Some of you are holding things so tightly, planning prepping, manipulating, guilting, twisting, controlling. And he isn't condemning you in that moment. He lovingly comes alongside and says, how's that working out? Because I know a group of people who gave up that life to take hold of eternal life. I know people That live generously, and here's what's wild their world continues to get more generous and more generous and more generous. And Jesus would say, I get that, because they've not neglected or refused or shunned the cross, but they've embraced the cross and have a willingness to walk with it, even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's inconvenient. The apostle Paul, who is perhaps the disciple, the apostle who, in my estimation, was most greatly transformed by the love of God. The reason I say that is Paul comes up early in the book of Acts and he's actually found on the wrong side with the wrong mentality, kind of the wrong team, so to speak. He's out persecuting Christians. The first Christian martyr is a man named Stephen. And as Stephen is being stoned, the book of Acts accounts that Stephen's clothes were laid to rest at Paul's feet. And Paul was standing in approval and affirming the death of the first Christian martyr. But God was up to something big. And Paul would get a revelation in the man, Jesus Christ. On a walk, he would get hit by the love of God, transformed. Paul would come across an early, early, early European church in the region of Gaul, G-A-U-L. And he would write a letter called Galatians. And he would unpack the grace and the mercy of God so eloquently and so profoundly. And in Galatians, a remarkable passage comes to us. In the second chapter for us, In verse 20, Paul would pen these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you feel at times like your Christianity is a square peg in a round hole, first off, let me tell you, you're not alone. You're not the only person who has ever felt or feels that. But it's a tension point of our flesh and our faith. Our flesh is what Paul would call the old man, the pre-cross Paul. And the post-cross, Paul. And he would go on in the book of Galatians to highlight. He's not giving you 10 steps to carry a cross, 50 steps to carry a cross. He just begins to highlight what a life without the cross is usually going in versus a life with the cross. Here's what he says. He says, the acts of the flesh are a life without the cross. Here's what you can expect. Here's what you can expect. He's not not pointing at you. His pace isn't accelerated. His his gums are intact. His teeth are kind. He may even be smiling when he says this. But he pragmatically whispers these truths to us. Not condemning, yelling, angry, fits of rage. No, he's just saying, hey, when it's not working, when you've put the cross down, when you've tossed the cross aside, when you're living for yourself... Here's what it looks like. It's obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. It's like, Paul, could you get your point across? I will. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Great. Keep going, Paul. We love it. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this, what is it, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just not fitting. It doesn't work. And if you're anything like me, you know that to be true. At the moment you cast your cross aside to get your way, The moments you refuse to lift your cross, or how about some of us can get really good at it. You give your cross to somebody who carries crosses pretty well. Hey, could you take mine? I'll see you next week. And we just kind of live for ourselves, live for our our, our, our will, live in our ways. And Jesus says, man, lose that life so that you may gain my eternal life. And Paul doesn't leave that off the table else. He says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of cross caring, the fruit of the way of the cross, the fruit of crucified, died, and buried. The fruit of that is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I end, to which we all say, thank you, Jesus. I end. Matthew 16, 24. If you've been struggling for your faith to work, ask Jesus to help you with this verse. Ask Jesus to help you with every arena, surrendered with a cross, marking it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let's pray. God, we come before you again. We can call upon you because of the work of your son, Jesus and the life we have through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to live for you. But Father, sometimes we find ourselves in that space Paul found himself. The very thing I know I should do, I don't do. And Lord, your mercy and grace was there for Paul and we receive it in our life as well. That Lord, may we not bypass What you did on the cross may we receive it afresh the forgiveness of sins that is found only through jesus christ the mercy that is given only by the blood of jesus that your word says it covers a multitude of sins we receive that lord but we also are mindful of the call to obedience to deny ourselves and to carry your cross I thank you, Lord, that at the end of Paul's letter to Galatians, he says, don't get weary. Don't get weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Lord, let us not give up in carrying our cross for such a time as this. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and your mercy and your strength, Lord as we walk these days, in Jesus' name, amen.